right. We are in a series called Epic. We're looking at the story of God in the Bible. And we're looking at three, or excuse me, four big questions. Where did everything come from? Why are we in the situation that we're in with a lot of good in the world, but also a lot of evil? What has God done about it? And how is the story going to be wrapped up someday? And so today we are in the, the what part. What has God done? Recently I was, I was looking at something online and one of those ads popped up that I usually find really annoying. Uh, it, was, it was five ways to improve your resume. And I kind of chuckled and I thought, boy, I'm glad that I haven't had to do that in a long time. I haven't had to think that way for a long time. And it reminded me uh, that this November is my fifth year anniversary of being in this church. And so I thought, wow, that's really neat. Thank you. Just, just fishing away for a compliment there. <laughs> and I thought, well, I kind of thought, well, when was the last time I really had to polish up my resume, really had to work on looking good for a potential employer? And I realized it was about six years ago, a little over that. I was finishing up seminary. I had one more class that I was working on. Uh, I was working part-time at a, at a church, and I had a, had a wife, had a child, had another child on, a, on the way in about three months, and so I was feeling that pressure to, to find a full-time job. I, I knew God had been providing for me uh, miraculously and taking care of our, our bills and whatnot, but I really wanted to find a full-time job, you know, to provide for my family, and so I started sending resumes all over the place to, you know, various pastoring jobs all over the country. Anything I could find, I was sending out my, my resume there. Uh, and I was also applying for other part-time jobs, thinking, well, maybe I could do two part-time jobs if I have to. Uh, I had nothing, no bites, no, no responses. And uh, this was 2009, so the economy was bad. Uh, churches were laying off staff. Some churches were closing and so there was a lot of pastors looking for jobs at this time. And unfortunately, as I was in this big pack of pastors, my resume just didn't stand out. And I knew it didn't. I had a seminary degree, or I was going to have a seminary degree soon, but so did many others. I had done a number of internships, but so did many other pastors, and mine weren't all that impressive. I hadn't interned at Saddleback or Willow Creek or some big named church. I had served in churches in Indiana that were good churches, but nobody had heard of them, most people around here at least. Uh, my only job experience as a pastor was serving for three years as a part-time youth pastor of a very small Chinese church. Uh, had a good experience. The youth group grew, but it wasn't huge by any means. It, it didn't grow ex exponentially. And so there was nothing really in my resume to make it stand out, and I knew I had to do something. And so I and I wrote a cover letter and just put a lot of passion in there and sent it out. And I got feedback that we don't look at cover letters anymore. Nobody's reading this. Oh, man. So I thought, what else can I do, you know? And I thought, well, I, I had decent grades. And so I, I thought, well, I'll just put my GPA on there. And it sounds kind of dumb now, but I'm a student, right? So I put my GPA on there. I'm a good student. And I get feedback. This is crass. We don't, we don't want to see your GPA on there. And so I was feeling pretty discouraged. I'm thinking, what do I do? You know, there's, I have no way to make myself stand out. My church was non-denominational, so I couldn't even try to, try to work connections within a denomination. And so one day in February of 2010, I was on a job website for pastors, and I was looking through the jobs and feeling pretty discouraged. I don't know if you've ever been in that place where you think, oh, I'm not even going to get a job, right? You've been looking for a long time. And so I'm looking through there, and I, I noticed this church in Torrance is looking for an assistant pastor. And I feel some hope 
inside of me. I think, wow, wouldn't that be cool to get a, a job right here in Torrance? Because I've been applying all over the country. And I think, man, I wouldn't even have to uproot my family. We could keep our friendships, keep our connections, and, and build new ones, but be right in the same community. And then I, I read the job description of an ideal candidate, and then that hope began to go down again. <laughs> I thought, man, I'm not going to get hired here. I don't even think Jesus would get hired at this church. <laughs> I don't know what kind of super person they're looking for, but, and I almost, I almost moved on, literally. I'm thinking, ah, I'm just going to keep going. I said, oh, oh what, what, a, what a heck. And I sent in my job. I pushed the send button on there and sent in my resume. And... Um, literally forgot all about it until about three months later I got called and then uh, months after that in October when I accepted the job position here I felt a, a tremendous sense of gratitude to Pastor John and the board because I knew that my resume was not overly impressive. I knew that I didn't stand out and so I was very grateful that they had taken a chance on me. Nothing, nothing in my background to um, disqualify me just to allay any fears there. <laughs> But, but certainly nothing to make me stand out. And so I was so grateful and thankful that they took a chance on a young guy. Now I say all of that because the first three chapters of Romans, which are leading up to our passage today, uh, are all about preparing a resume, in a sense. Paul says that each of us is preparing a resume with our lives, with how we live. And we're going to present that resume to God someday and, and basically apply to get into heaven to show him that we deserve to be in heaven with him, that we're qualified, that we're the right fit, that we belong on the team. And so when God says, why, why should you enter my presence? What qualifies you? What justifies your belief that you should be here? You'll hand him the resume of your life and you'll say, I'm good enough, God, I deserve it. And most religions, most ideologies will tell you to trust your resume. Trust it. It's going to be good enough. And so when you lay awake at night wondering, what justifies my life? How can I justify choices that I've made that have hurt people, that I know deep down were wrong, they're sinful, regardless of how I try to justify it, what, what can, can justify those choices in God's sight? How can, I, how can I justify not being who I know I should be? And most people will tell you, to, when that happens, when you're having one of those existential crises, Pull out your resume. Pull it out. And remind yourself of the good things that you've done. And remind yourself of the good intentions, the good motivations behind the mistakes that you've made. And then you can rest in peace. Then you can go back to sleep with peace in your heart. Knowing that if God really exists, and if he actually does judge people, you'll be ready with your resume. And it'll be good enough. But the problem, Paul says, is that it's not good enough. Your resume is not even close to being good enough. It's like thinking that you can land a, a high-level job at Apple because you have an iPhone, and you took a software class in high school, and you've only been convicted of a few felonies. It's not that big of a deal. And you go to the job recruiter, and he's laughing at you, and you're like, why? Well, why? I'm qualified. Or it's like applying to USC and thinking you're going to get in because you really like USC football and you like to wear red and yellow and it looks good on you. Uh, and you can, you can envision yourself living in a, in, in a frat, but you never graduated high school and you don't, never took a proficiency test or any kind of an SAT or ACT or anything, but you're a good person. 
not going to get in. And that's basically how Paul summarizes our chances of getting into heaven on the basis of our resume, of our good lives. And he gives a very general summary of humanity's resume before God in Romans 3 verse 9. And if you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to read through there. It leads right up to our passage today. Verse 9. Romans 3 verse 9. Paul says, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God, truly, genuinely. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. And here Paul just means the moral law, general. Either the law of Moses or the law of conscience in our hearts. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Deep down, each of us knows that we need to justify ourselves. We know it. You may say, I can live how I want, but deep down... You know you need to justify yourself. That's why when somebody does something to someone else, does something wrong, they feel the need to explain why they did that and why actually it wasn't wrong, why they they are justified. And yet deep down we know that we can't justify ourselves. There's an article I read recently. I think it was in the Telegraph. It was a man from York, England. And he's a secular man, not religious. But he had a very interesting article. Every day he has to walk past this, this billboard on his way to work. It's a billboard of Romans 14.12. It says, so then, every one of us will give an account of himself to God. And this man writes, and he says, irrespective of whether you are religious or not, the idea of being able to justify your existence crops up more and more. He goes on, he says, I'm not a religious person But the older I get, the stronger I feel the need to justify my life. Some of my secular and religious friends tell me that's ridiculous. Why do you need to justify yourself to someone else? Why do you have to prove that you're worthy? You are who you are. You live the way you want to live. Who cares what anyone else thinks? But he says, the problem with that is that people who truly believe They can do whatever they want, and they don't need to justify their behavior to anyone. Those people are psychopaths. Those are people who are capable of very bad things. Normal people do believe they need to justify their behavior. But the problem is, what standard do we use? He says, most of us say we are justified in what we do because we are living the kind of life we think others should live. I'm the kind of person I think I should be. I'm the kind of person I think other people should be. But we know deep down that that is not true. He says, here's the problem with justifying my existence. It's very hard. 
not because I'm a really bad person, but because I could be, and I know I should be, far better than I am. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that God is going to judge everyone by the law of Moses or by some religious teaching that they've never heard of. He says he's going to judge them by what they know in their hearts is true about how they should have lived. One pastor described it this way. He said it's as if there's this invisible recorder around every person's neck. And this recorder only picks up what you tell other people about how they should live. What you tell other people is the right way to live and what they ought to do and what they ought not to do. And on judgment day, God is going to take that recorder and he's going to say, I'm going to be very fair to you. I'm not going to judge you by what you didn't know or what you said you didn't believe. I'm going to judge you by what you say your own standards are for how other people should live. Let's see how you do. Play. See, on judgment day, Paul says, our true character will be revealed and our mouths will be shut. It will be undeniable that we're not justified, undeniable that we're wicked. No one will be able to defend themselves. And the resume that you put your hope in, that you worked so hard to polish, will be revealed as utterly foolish and worthless. But the good news of Christianity is that the story doesn't end there. None of us can prepare a resume good enough to get into heaven. And deep down, honestly, we don't even want to. Let's be real honest. None of us want to be good enough to get into heaven. And therefore, in in his incredible love for us, God has prepared a resume for us because we cannot and we will not do it for ourselves. Let's read Romans 3, 21 through 26. And I'm, this, let's just be, just be honest, this is a hard passage in terms of there's a lot of theologically technical terms. And so if you were a Jew living in Rome when Paul re- wrote this, if you were a Christian Jew, you would have been like, oh yeah, I, I totally get this. And if you were a Gentile Christian in Rome, you'd be like, I don't quite get this, but then the Jewish Christians would explain it to you. But here we are 2,000 years later, and so it is hard sometimes to understand Paul's terms, so I'm going to take it slow. Verse by verse, I'm going to explain some of the major terms. It's not going to feel like it flows, but we'll go back and read through it again. So verse 21, but now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. So righteousness here, what Paul's talking about, it is a validating performance record that puts you in right standing with another person. Think of it as a resume. Something that puts you in right standing with another person, and in this case, with God. This performance record, this behavioral record, puts you in right standing with God. Law here refers just to the moral law. It could be the law of Moses, it could be the law of conscience if you're a Gentile, and the law and the prophets refer to the Jewish scriptures. All right, so, but let me read it again. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. Pause there. Faith here, the word faith, it means belief. It starts out with simple belief. I believe that. 
but it moves from belief to trust. I trust in, and trust also means confidence. I have confidence in, and then that leads to putting your allegiance in, to identifying with. So I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I then trust in him as my Savior, as my Lord. I put my confidence in him that he's going to come through for me, that he's going to save me, that he's going to take care of me, and I identify with him. He is my master. He is my Lord. Do you understand what faith is here? It's a a big term, but that's the basic idea. 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Fall short simply means you don't meet the standard. You apply for the job and they say, "Eh, your resume falls short of our qualifications. Glory of God here means God's standard, his perfect goodness. And there's two ideas here. When Jews would talk about the glory of God, it meant his goodness that should be reflected in our lives. We are made to be like little mirrors and think of God like the sun. And so God's glory, his goodness shines and it ought to be reflected off of our lives. But we have become broken mirrors that don't reflect God's glory. And therefore, we're not even qualified to be in his presence. That's the second understanding of glory in the Jewish mind, to be in God's presence, in his perfect glory for eternity. And so we fall short of that standard. Verse 24. For, let me start in 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So justified here, it's the same root word as righteous. It means to be qualified for something, to be in right standing with someone. Basically, it just means to be good enough. Grace is unearned, an unearned gift or an unearned favor. If somebody gives you something that you haven't earned, it's a, it's a, a gracious gift. If somebody shows you kindness and, and mercy when you've totally not earned that, and in fact you've done things to disqualify yourself, it is, a, it is grace towards you. Redemption here, oh, it's a huge term, huge kind of background, but basically the simple meaning in the Greek means to buy back, to buy back, to buy something back. And in the ancient world, there was no bankruptcy. So if you went in debt and you couldn't pay, you couldn't go bankrupt and and have that protection. Instead, your property could be seized. And if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't sufficient sufficient to pay your debts, you and your family could be sold into slavery to pay for your debts, to work off those debts. And most of the time, you could never work them off. But what someone could do if they loved you, if they cared about you, they could redeem you. They could go to the person to whom you owe the debt, and they could say, I will pay this person's debt so they do not have to lose their property and so they do not have to go into slavery. That's the, the kind of the ancient idea. And there's a lot more to this, but that's kind of a simple understanding of redemption there. Verse 25, God presented him, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. Now, this sacrifice of atonement, the word here is halostrium. 
big, again, another big concept, deep Jewish concept. But for now, a very simple explanation of this is to satisfy the requirements of justice by punishing evil. To satisfy the requirements of justice by punishing evil. In us, deep down, we know that part of goodness, to be good, to be a good person, to be a good being, part of goodness demands that evil be punished, that it be dealt with. To ignore evil, we know deep down that that is not right. Evil must be punished. It must be dealt with. So that's what holostrium means, to satisfy the requirements of justice by punishing evil. So, that was a lot of technical explanation, I get it. But now, look at your notes, your sermon notes, and I did a paraphrase there, kind of taking in all these explanations. And if you're a Greek scholar and you want to critique me later, you can. But I did, I think, I think it's decent. I think it gets the idea here. Let's read it together. But now, a perfect resume of righteousness from God, apart from our good works, has been revealed which the Old Testament points to. This resume from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ and is available to anyone who believes. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory and are qualified freely by his gracious payment of our debts through Christ Jesus. God punished the evil behavior of those who trust in Christ by offering Jesus as a sacrifice in their place. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his patience he had passed over sins committed beforehand. But now he has shown how he can demand justice for those who do evil, and yet meet that demand on behalf of those who have faith in Jesus. So God has prepared his own perfect human resume of righteousness. It's the life of Jesus Christ. God does not require more from you than what he is willing to do himself. He came and lived among us as a human being, and now he offers us his resume, his perfect resume, as a gift to anyone who is willing to trust in and identify themselves with Christ. When a person identifies himself with Christ through faith, God sees that person, he sees you, in the same category as he sees his own son. See, Jesus is, as a human, Jesus is justified with God. He's qualified because of his perfect, sinless life. He's righteous on the basis of his own record of behavior. But none of us can be justified with God in that way. None of us even want to be justified in that way deep down in our natural state. And so none of us will be declared righteous on the basis of our resumes. But when we identify ourselves with Jesus by trusting in him as our master and as our savior, our identity before God gets incorporated with Jesus's so that his righteousness now becomes our righteousness. His resume becomes my resume. But you might say, well, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on. If our identities get merged and our resumes get merged, then okay, I see how I get his resume, but then he gets my resume. And so his righteousness, his goodness belongs to me, but now my sins, my debts, my black marks, they belong to him. So how would that solve anything? My resume has my debts all over it. 
It solves something because now God can credit your debt as having been paid. He can credit your sin as having been punished through the suffering inflicted, the punishment inflicted on Jesus. Jesus was not punished for sins that he committed. He was punished for the sins that you committed because when you became his, when you became connected to him, your sins were also attributed to him. Does that make sense? You're not justified with God on the basis of your resume. You're justified on the basis of his resume. Think of it like this. Think of no, no analogy or metaphor is perfect, but think of two corporations that are merging. And one corporation is in right standing with the government. It has a perfect record of business practice. And the other corporation has a, has a long criminal record of, 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 of criminal charges and it owes a great deal of money and malpractice fines and lawsuits. Uh, and because of the fines and the damage to its reputation, the, the second company has no hope of being in right standing with the government or even with the general public uh, ever. There's no way to, to solve its problems. And so in order to prevent bankruptcy and disillusion, it is allowed to merge with the first company, provided that the first company pays for the debts owed by the second company, and provided that the first company's executive leadership remain in charge after the merger. Does that make sense? First company pays the debts of the second company, and they remain in charge because second company is inept, and so the leader's got to stay in charge. That's what happens when we merge with Christ. There are conditions. There are conditions. He pays our debts, but he also becomes in control. He becomes in charge of our lives. Now, one aside here that I think should be dealt with. Some would say, well, wait a minute. Why does God even have to demand righteousness? I mean, that sounds kind of harsh, right? I mean, why must sins be punished and paid for? That's, you could do a whole sermon series on that question, but let me quickly say that God is absolutely good in his nature. His nature is good. It, God doesn't sit up in heaven and say, man, should I do what's good or not? Like, he does it. He just is good. And to be good is to hate things that harm and destroy or lessen what is good. So if you are good, if you love someone, say you have a child that you love, you are going to hate that which hurts that child or that which destroys that child that, or even that which lessens that child's goodness. Why do we get angry when people ruin our child's innocence and, and draw them into sinful behavior? Because they're lessening our child's goodness. Evil is a lack of goodness. And it harms and lessens goodness. And so God, in his sense of justice, demands. He, he knows that he must punish evil. But because God is good, he also desires to be merciful. So how can he be both? Well, in the Old Testament, the temporary solution was to do animal sacrifices. And Dean talked about this last week. He talked about um, the Passover and how they would kill a lamb and they would put the blood on the doorpost to, to show that their sins had been covered there's also another major sacrifice called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the Jewish people, as a people, they would, they would come collectively before God, and they would say, we have sinned as a people, we have not been faithful, we know that there must be punishment for our sin, and so they would take a bull, and they would kill the bull, and then they would take the blood of the bull, and they would take that to the Ark of the Covenant, and in the Ark of the Covenant, that's a, that's a wood box, and in the box was the Ten Commandments that clearly stated God's 
moral law, his expectations, what is right and wrong. And, and they had broken those Ten Commandments, and so they would take the blood of the bull, and over that was the thing called the mercy seat, where God was, was envisioned to dwell with his people. And they would take the blood and put it on the mercy seat. And so when God looked down at the Ten Commandments and thought of the sins of his people, he saw the blood of this bull. And he knew that their sins had been, had been punishment had been inflicted for their sins. But it wasn't perfect. An animal is sinless, but it's not righteous. An animal can't be righteous. And so God passed over their sins, but those sacrifices were just pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of a truly innocent and truly righteous victim who could take our place. And so God presented himself in the person of Jesus Christ as a perfect substitute to take the punishment for the sins of those who trust in him. A lot of times we think of God as like being mean and like taking his little child, but that's not how it worked. I mean, certainly God offered his son, but Jesus willingly chose to offer himself. It's the whole Trinity thing working together. Jesus offered himself on our behalf. God came to earth not to demand our blood, but to offer his own. Not to punish us, but to punish himself on our behalf. And he offers you his perfect resume of righteousness with the payment of all your debts. The question then is, will you accept his offer? Will you stake your eternal future on your resume or on his? Will you hope that his justice is less than perfect and then he's just going to look at you and say, all right, come on in. Or will you trust that his justice is perfect, but so is his mercy? Let's pray. Father, it's such a deep, deep concept to talk about your, your redemption. And Lord, we acknowledge as finite humans, we don't even fully understand it. We thank you that you've given us the basics. And Lord, we don't trust, I don't trust in my incredible preaching. Uh, but Lord, we trust, I trust in your Holy Spirit. And I ask that you would open our minds to understand these things. To convict us, not just to understand, but to convict us of their truth. That we would know deep down that these things are true. And that we'd be drawn, and we would desire them, hunger them. Help us to choose to submit our lives to you, Lord, to accept your gift, your resume with the payments of all our debts. Help us not to be proud, but to submit in gratitude to you. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Can you stand with me? For a benediction, a good word before we go. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed. Go in peace.